0: Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with Jeff Shackelford. So we are continuing our series on golf course architects uh, after many people stated that they loved the uh, podcast with Wayne Morrison recently on William Flynn. So we figured who better to talk about George Thomas than Jeff Shackelford. Jeff has written uh, the club history for Riviera as well as the captain, a um, profile book on George Thomas, the man himself, the man, the architecture, his courses. Um, obviously, another thing on George Thomas you can look into is uh, his book, Golf Architecture in America, which a reprint is available on Amazon for fourteen bucks. So. If you want to dive into George Thomas more, that's available, but this is a, uh, a riveting ch- chat with Jeff Shackelford, obviously the owner of jeffshackelford.com. He also has a Substack newsletter newsletter uh, called The Quadrilateral that is 50 bucks a year that I subscribe to. I really enjoy it, um, recommend that, and without further ado, here is Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, you are the uh, the foremost living George Thomas expert, in my opinion. You've written an entire novel, The Captain, on George Thomas. Uh, I'd love to hear how you first got interested in George Thomas.
1: Uh, Well, I was very lucky, Andy, that uh, my dad joined Riviera when I was uh, 16 years old and kind of an aspiring player at the time. And he also had a copy of, uh, golf architecture in America. And so the combination of kind of, uh, getting to look at, and that was when, by the way, when, when copies of the book were a big deal and very scarce, now there's reprints and, and it's, um, easier to get your hands on, but, uh, and it's such an incredible book. Uh, so it was, it was somebody who had kind of, uh, doodled golf holes and, and, and had a young mind and, and, and that book more than any of the great books has just got so much in it, um, visually and so many little tantalizing things. Once you start playing some of his courses like, well, wait, what is, what was this? Why, wh- what, on earth is that photo of? Where's that course now? And so I was kind of in that mindset, um, as a teenager and, um, and then, Again, I when I was 16, he joined Riviera, and so then I got to play Riviera, and, and uh, that was a crazy time there. It was a very busy place, so it was a miracle to get out before 3 o'clock. Uh, it was like a muni, and but I grew to love the course, even in its sort of uh, uh, not, not well-aged uh, state. And then uh, as I played in college and got more and more into architecture, and uh, they had the greens project there in in 93 and 94, and I got to know Ben Crenshaw and and Dave Axelin and Dan Proctor were were doing a lot of the shaping on site. And and, uh, one thing led to another, and I just started looking for old photos and went to the just kind of as a my game was starting to stink i had a bad wrist i hit too many balls never took enough days off and i started hunting for photos because they started this project and there were a lot of questions we had there were there were things that ben knew and and figured out and then i went and found photos and really just got more and more into uh, that And, um, and that's what kind of led to me pitching a book to the ownership after college on the history riviera and then i followed that up pretty quickly uh at age 24 uh with a self-published book the captain and it was printed quite stunningly by a member um uh just a just did a beautiful job and it was bound in a nice way i'm very proud of all that the writing makes me cringe a little bit but uh I'm very proud of the book still and I don't I, I used to be able to draw too I was kind of excited when I when I could my, my hand was steady or something but it was just a labor of love kind of thing and and uh, there were just so many questions to try to answer about the man not only his golf architecture but his, his unbelievable life
0: with the with Riviera you join you are 16 you'd played golf before obviously you were you know you played college golf so you at this point you're a uh, you know aspiring golfer as you said yeah what did you notice that was different about riviera than the other courses that you had grown up playing
1: oh well it's just the scale of it was so grand and and again even with more trees then and and different things that that were uh clearly kind of not quite right i mean there were really a lot of trees eucalyptus were really dense not trimmed i mean it was it was a there were a lot of tight drives in. But uh, the bunkers, of course, even sort of in that state, were beautiful. Um, and, you know, the the ultimate thing about Riviera that got me was that it's just it was just so much uh, fun to play every day. You never got tired of it. No hole ever got boring. Even the holes that look, you know, if you looked at them on Google Earth today or, or then, which it didn't exist. But uh, if you looked... At them from afar, is some holes you know, didn't look that <clears throat> captivating. Um, other holes obviously did, like 16 and the part 3s, all of them really. And uh, and there just there were so many subtleties and, and different elements, even with Kikuya, which also messes up a lot of the great components of the that design the approaches in particular uh that are just beautifully done and uh, so it was just that kind of that 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 interest in playing it every day you just never get tired of it
0: i didn't want to i didn't I, this is jumping way ahead oh, of here we go first this. rat hole we're gonna go down but why is it Kikuya? does it need to be Kikuya? could it be grass differently yeah um to get those approaches back
1: Yeah, to to answer the last question first, yes, I do I do think it's kinda sad that um yeah, a lot of people have thrown that idea out before of why why can't you have Bermuda um, collars and approaches? Kind of like Tory Pines did that. Um when when Reese Jones redid it, one of the things they did was kept the Kikuya out. Isn't that
0: how rustic is? different well rustic is yeah
1: yeah it's bent and uh we had wanted Mm -hmm. to have a little more of the bent in the fairways and originally it was rye fairways Then the uh the bent approaches and by the way the bent approaches are unbelievably healthy on the native soil whereas the california greens are they're fine but they're, they're not as healthy it tells you a little bit about you know when you have good native soil you should use it and rustic rustic had it on all but one green site um so, um, but Riviera, it, it would be really nice to have that. Um, and I know the USGA threw it out when Tim Morgan was there and some other people have pitched that idea and it just never happened because in the summertime, it's just, a. it, it really kills the, the, the allure of having hard, firm, hard greens because if you land it three feet short of some of those greens or three yards short, the, again, in the summer, it just stops. Now they've done a lot since to to get the Kukuya a little tighter, and they use Primo, and um, it still though is not you don't you don't run the ball up. But in the winter time, you can at least see balls and, and, and that are, a running ball will move, and that's that's nice because there's just some of the most beautiful approaches. The other thing that kind of got screwed with over time is every green has like a little. Ross-style ridge in front, and that, that wasn't Thomas. Thomas had very clean approach. He and Bell built their approaches right into the green, but years of top dressing built these little rims or, or, or upslopes or false fronts or whatever you want to call them, and they're awful because, I mean, I remember as a kid – when, you know, you're hitting a forward into some of these holes that are really long, like 18, you hit the most beautiful shot and it just hits that little upslope. Sometimes they would come back at you and you're like, oh God, that was such a good shot. And this stupid Kikuya ruins it. So Kikuya was brought there, uh, for one of two reasons. Don't really know which one is, after all these years, I still don't know the actual reason, but it, either one of them, um, works, uh, either for the polo fields that were next door to the first, uh, uh, fairway is one version that it was a grass sought to be tougher to handle the polo. I think that's the less likely reason. The more likely is that after the big flood that went through the course in, uh, 38, uh, Willie Hunter, the pro, uh, was kind of charged with trying to reinforce the seventh and eighth holes and prevent them from, from washing out and having more damage. They were damaged in that flood and, uh, they used Kikuya. Uh, to stabilize the banks and be a tougher grass and uh, I think that's the more likely story and then it spread through the course it spread through all of West LA if you ever around here you can look at a parking sign and the grass actually grows up through the railing and comes out the top so it's it's just a noxious brutal weed and I don't think there's any way you could get it off the property now I mean it would take I mean it's so that the root structure is incredible it just keeps coming back. But I do I, I do think you could – and it makes a great fairway grass, and they've learned to manage it, by the way. Um, you know, when I was younger and playing there, they scalped and it was so puffy. I mean, you would be exhausted after 18 holes just because it's like walking on a sponge. Now it's it's managed better. Um, I wouldn't lick your ball or anything out there. Uh, just primo is probably not a great thing to ingest. But um, I would say that, that ultimately if you could – get those approaches regrassed, uh, smooth out that transition to the front of the green. And it would be, it would just make the course so much uh, better. And it would allow you to really have those greens nice and firm and, and, and still let somebody land a ball short for those front pins.
0: Um, so let's talk a little bit about George Thomas. He said, uh, what an amazing person in, in life he led. Tell us a little bit about George Thomas, uh, you know, his his upbringing um, and then his eventual move out to California.
1: Well, he made uh, he made his living the old fashioned way. Uh, He was the uh, executor of the family (laughs) estate. But, you know, um, (laughs) the beautiful thing about George Thomas is that, you know, he only lived 59 years. And uh, yeah, he he was born into money and never really had to work, but, uh, boy, did he do a lot in his 59 years from serving, um, uh, our country and, uh, to, um, experimenting with roses was one of his obsessions. Golf architecture, we know, uh, fly fishing, yachting. uh, yachting. He had a nice yacht, <laughs> um, dogs. He was, uh, into debris. I have a trophy up here somewhere in my my collection that his grandson gave me uh uh english setters i believe were his his dog of choice that he he showed now i don't know if he was out in the ring you know i i don't i don't actually know that part (laughs) but he he had a he had an interest in dogs um he got he just was a busy guy he he really did a lot and he wrote a lot too he did he wrote Two books on roses one on uh, fly fishing and of course golf architecture in America and multiple articles for various publications and uh, very integral in, in you know the creation of Pine Valley a founding member a friend of George Crump was out there quite a bit um, you know one of my real regrets is there's a, there was a little blurb and I cannot find it I when I went back to the USGA after I'd done the captain and went through the library I found some things that answered some questions that I could not answer in the book. Um, and, uh, one of those though was a blurb, uh, that I, I know I'm not hallucinating, but it made clear that he was coming back to help, uh, William Flynn with the alternate green on number nine. And, uh, just, just drives me nuts that I don't, uh, don't have that little blurb, uh, that he, he, he made the trip back. Uh, so he was very devoted to that place. And, and he, he mentions George Crump in his, his book and obviously Tillinghast and Ross. He had a lot of experience. The one question I've never been able to answer is during, and I speculated on in the book is when he was in, 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 in World War one, uh, he must have, there must've been a way he saw the great links because he, he refers to some of them and he clearly was inspired by elements of, of golf there. but, but um, he never really wrote anything about any trips in particular the way Tillinghast did about going to visit Tom Morris and took photos of him and all that stuff. And so I don't think he got all this through A.W. Tillinghast. I think he had to have gotten some of it through experience.
0: So he was really, if you look at the golden age of American golf, he was, you, you had kind of uh, McDonald, uh, Leeds. Uh, fowler and then you had also ross doing early work in the 1910s obviously he had his work at at marion so he he was more if you would you'd kind of classify him as almost like the second generation of the first generation of american golf architects in a way yeah where he had the benefit of of having people that somewhat mentored him
1: correct yeah, and he made that very clear in his, his own writings, yeah.
0: And who were those people?
1: Well, he Tillinghast and Ross, he, he singled out um, as having been huge parts of his life. Crump, Hugh Wilson, the whole Philadelphia uh, gang there uh, were, were really vital to his uh, education. And then he attempted and, and built the golf course on the, the family estate at uh, White Marsh, which still exists today. Um, so it, it was a combination of all those people. I'm sure William Flynn was, was, uh, another person that was, was, was vital to his education at the time.
0: With Pine Valley, um, that was, you know, of course that, you know, there are shades of all different types of arch- uh, all different architects in there, you know, obviously like hell's half acre is a tilling House feature, um, or believed to be. Uh what what would you say are the things that, that scream George Thomas at Pine Valley other than the ninth green?
1: You know, I never really thought of it that way. Um I can't I can't say there's anything that I would I would uh attribute to him. It's just hard to tell. You know, when you have you look at Pine Valley and you look at Colts drawings and you you know some things are maybe attributed to Crump that, that uh, weren't his. It's it's just it's hard to say for me, honestly. Um, I would I would certainly look at um, the twelfth hole as is, is the one hole that I've always wondered uh, how much that influenced Thomas or how much Thomas influenced that because it has some shades of uh, the tenth of Riviera, sort of sort of uh, almost playing away. And taking the longer path uh, for the approach shot into the, the better angle into the green, um, which is is a, I think the most fascinating thing he did with with the tenth of Riviera and with uh, that more people don't like to try and do, which is which is create a hole where there's obviously the instinct to take the short route, um, but if you actually take the longer. route, path which is so against anybody's instinct as a golfer uh but you get this better angle we tried to do it on the on the 12th at uh, rustic canyon and just just a total rip off of that concept from from thomas and and a little bit of pine valley Um, although i don't i don't really know if it it works on 12 at pine valley because i've hit it over to the right um I don't. I. It's. I haven't seen it since Fazio uh, uh, took a dump on it. But I, I. can't imagine it's looking too great these days from what everybody says. But. Uh, but I love that concept. That because it's just. It, it's just not. What anybody, especially now with carry distances, anybody wants to do. You. It's like why would I make the hole longer to get a better angle? And it just. It's uh, something that especially good players just just loathe doing, even when they've seen it. Uh, play out in a way that you know that yeah uh, if you take if you're gonna play the whole uh, 10 times and you're gonna you're gonna your average score is gonna be better and you're gonna take out double bogey and you're gonna take out and maybe you're gonna make a few you know fewer birdies or no eagle um, but over the over the long haul playing safe playing the longer way in, uh is the better way to do it it's just still fascinating that that uh if the hole's done right when when the golfer just just resists that and uh that 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 he he got from probably from pine valley and then tried to carry to riviera is to me really really neat and something not enough uh, architects explore with uh especially with short par fours well the, the idea too of uh
0: you know it's a uh, architecture that reveals your it re- reveals itself after multiple plays that counterintuitive yeah. nature of it the first time you play it you're everybody's going to hit it up it, that can hit it is going to hit it up into the spot that the architect wants you to really hit it and realize this isn't the best spot to be and it could take a long time to figure out wait i should play way left and uh, obviously, the strategy for tour professionals at Riviera has changed drastically because yeah, of yeah. the immense carry distance and uh, I just want to clarify that before any, uh, any of our friends come at us.
1: Yeah, and that's very recent by the way too. I mean that, and that's why I've always yeah. I wish the hole would be lengthened uh, 15, 20 yards. I, I, I just they could put it back on the, on the roof of the clubhouse. Well, I wouldn't you go know? quite that far. I'd, I'd just go. There's a nice little <laughs> pocket on the other side of the gargantuan could cart path. They put one tee
0: up there too.
1: Uh, they well, they might. They put one you know, up there. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, they have teed <laughs> off the club. Used to have a green monster tournament, and they did create a tee uh, up on the on the deck of the clubhouse. They actually built a, a platform and and, a, and put a mat down. <laughs> it was pretty wild, and uh, I'm not sure liability wise, it was the smartest thing to do, but it was it was pretty cool.
0: So um, he's he's in Philly. He's he builds Marion, which was uh, up in Massachusetts. He then yeah. goes to World War One, and then, as I understand it correctly, he he builds White Marsh Valley uh, after that.
1: Right. Uh, I don't remember the exact year, but c- that's correct. And then also Spring Lake in uh, New Jersey.
0: Mm-hmm. And then what prompts him to move to California?
1: Well, according to him, um, I mean he was. Pretty banged up. He crashed three times. He was lucky to survive. Uh, he was a pilot, one... right? Yeah, he was a pilot. Crashed. Uh, he, I mean, he survived the three
0: crashes. Three
1: crashes. He did. And uh, there's, there's that. That he he was his famous quote is he was damn lucky to survive. It was a more of a miracle or something like that. To Zane Grey, the the famous author who was his buddy uh, out at the um, out of Catalina fly uh, deep sea fishing, and uh, he uh was clearly never quite the same from that he had health problems and he died at 59 and uh there were a lot of references to various times even when he was out here you know he never got to stanford uh which he did with billy bell and and because of his health and and he never really quite got the south course at la country club going because of his health and uh he did plans which are all gone of course we never saw never no, they're in the dump somewhere um but he wanted to move west in search of better rose-growing conditions and probably just better weather to, to, to kind of enjoy, and he was banged up. But but the roses were the primary reason, according to him and, and all sources, that he came here in search of, of better conditions for hybridizing uh, roses, which was uh, a, a huge passion of his.
0: What So it— when you say he was a avid rose gardener, I feel like that might be underselling it. He was one of the best rose gardeners in, in the entire world, correct?
1: Uh, well, it turned out that yeah, one of the the roses that he created wasn't a very attractive rose, but it ended up ended up Doctor Huey, who was sort of his mentor, he named it after. It's 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 a like a dark red, uh, not it's just not a very attractive rose, but the rootstock of it uh kind of the the, the and I, I apologize to any rosarian listening to this cuz i <laughs> i still don't understand this but it essentially yeah. is the 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 core dna of the plant that that um was used to as the basis for hybridizing a large majority of the roses by one of the the, the main makers and so because it it contained elements that made the rose did did, did different things for different roses but made them hardy. So it was kind of accidental, but it ended up being one of the most important roses ever created. Uh, and then yes, he hybridized, uh, multiple others, uh, in his, he had this incredible estate, which has now been subdivided. Uh, it, it appears to me, I haven't been up there, but I did go there one day. Uh, I just walked into the backyard, which I can't believe I did in hindsight, but, uh, where you could still see the remnants of this which are the photos are in the captain of this incredible sort of layered tiered garden he had uh where he did all this and i have some film that the family had that's really cool it's on youtube somewhere i have posted it uh and it's uh shows him walking around the garden amazing garden and uh and that's where he did all of his experimentation work and creation of Multiple roses that w- that went to the market. Uh, very few are available now, but um, you can still get people to to, to make cuttings and things. The L.A. Country Club just planted some, uh, what I'd call, I guess I'm sure there's a rose term, but but children of his roses. You know where somebody created a rose, taking Captain Thomas. Better than looking roses. One. Uh well, than you know, I mean, <laughs> well, it's not even looks. It's just sometimes some of them are, uh, you know, they have defects. Whatever they are, every rose mm-hmm. has. Uh, or not every, but has most roses thorn. have. <laughs> every they, rose well, has its thorn. Now, nah, now, nah, come on now, you, die, 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 don't mock. <laughs> uh, just those thorns will get you. The song. Uh, and to
0: play the. Hit. I couldn't. I couldn't. You couldn't uh, go there uh, without <sighs> me.
1: Saving. But uh, you know, like in his time, he was trying to create a better rose and and taking different ones, and now people have taken some of his. And yeah, one of them is called. um um uh, 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 golden showers that's created from captain thomas and another one uh that that is still available um i don't think the name um has aged very well unfortunately because of um some recent events but um so there are still some that you that are made from his roses there were a couple very famous roses that are sort of up in the air as to whether he was involved in them so yeah it, it was he had an amazing career on that front and and then he when he passed, everything was left to the American Rose Society, um, but there were some some issues there and uh, some tension with with I think his wife and family. And there were some roses named after women. I don't know who they were, and I, I, I have a feeling the rose garden was kind of destroyed in a in a sort of a sad way. So I've never really gotten that full story, but it, um, I never sensed it was a kind of a it was an odd ending to his his uh, rose career after he passed. So he,
0: he moves to California for roses. He's already, he's a accomplished player in in the Northeast in Philadelphia. He's built some golf courses. How does he go, get into the golf scene in Los Angeles? Uh, well what, he joined. What was the golf scene like? What was like the golf scene like when he got there? So,
1: well, it was em- emerging. There were interesting people around, like Norman Macbeth, who did Wilshire, and and there were these characters like the the founders of L.A. Country Club, Ed Tufts, and Joseph Sartori, who were trying to to grow the game and build out uh, and there were different people wanting to create clubs and so um it was it was uh, burgeoning i guess would be the word and then during the 20s it really took off I and mean, we had some amazing things created around here and a lot of them obviously left us during the depression years but incredible number of 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 courses and in wild locations and there's photos of all sorts of interesting holes. And so when he got here, he joined LA country club and being a member of Pine Valley and already kind of the the story of Pine Valley being known, um, he was asked to supervise the, uh, carrying out of Herbert Fowler's plans for, renovating the two courses at los angeles country club and herbert fowler wasn't here much and so he really took that job on and oversaw those those courses and the creation of them and and they were very much in the style of fowler in terms of the bunkering a little more grass-faced and they were uh, there were there were parts that were really fascinating and there were parts that were uh frankly kind of aggressive in the way that because it's a very Severe property and they took on some weird Mm -hmm. parts of the property. So, uh, that was his, that was the beginning of his career here. And then in, um, a couple years later, he did the two courses at Griffith park. Uh, they ran out of money. He funded the creation of, uh, or the, the completion of the work and they gave him a, a, a pass. There's some great photos of the opening day that I, that I have um, photocopies of, and I think there's some in the... No, I don't think those are in the captain. I think I got those after the book was done. Um, can't even remember now. Anyway, I'm looking here, but uh, big opening day, the whole thing, they gave him the, essentially the version of key to the city. They gave him a golf pass for life, which um, was really cool, and and uh, so that was that was sort of the next they were called the la municipal courses now it's griffith park and, and the harding and wilson courses and uh so from there and then and from what, there it just went, with it that, went nuts very
0: little of the thomas's left correct
1: uh the wilson routing is is quite a bit of his and and a a, a good portion of the harding is but yes there was a Uh, a wash and a freeway installed and and so they lost some holes there and then yeah architecturally the they've screwed with it over the years and added water bunkers and done all sorts of weird things and um but it you know it's the wilson starts with his uh signature touch of a of a nice par 5 uh gettable and and then a a a pretty tough par 4 uh, those two holes are beautiful, just a great start and uh, and then the third hole's a part three and then the fourth's a, a short part four that somebody put a pond on and uh, they might have taken that out now but it, uh, I haven't been, I haven't been on that part of the course in a while. I, I, last time I was there was when the uh, Special Olympics was played and they they played the uh, the Harding so i didn't get much out on the on the wilson it's it's hard to look at i mean when you and we have a pretty good aerial too of it and it it um, you know but again it was not on the level of the work he did with billy bell it was good it was solid but but things got better a few years later he
0: wrote about municipal golf and designing for municipal golf correct mhm
1: mhm and it was a big passion of his
0: what was his uh, premise? Uh, obviously, that's that's something that gets talked about a lot. Is that this is the way municipal golf or public golf has to be? We can't do this for public golf. What, what was his stance on on the difference between uh, deciding for public, uh, you know, mu- municipal golf versus private golf? Dude. You- yeah, he
1: may have overcorrected a little, but he definitely had a mindset of of a little more rudimentary and a little more playable and and not beat people up, and, and it may have been an overreaction to the the Pine Valley. I think I
0: saw like 75-yard wide fairways, right? Yeah,
1: he. I mean, he always built, all of his courses were built pretty wide, even though he was apparently a very good ball striker and a horrible putter. Um, But, yeah, he was into width, and he wanted width, and he wanted people to, to get around and, and have fun, and hey, he might have taken that a little far. Uh, but, like I said, it may have been, uh, overreaction to sort of the Pine Valley uh, inspiration in his career, and not wanting to, and having seen that kind of golf, and thinking that the, the public golfer needs to have a place where they can ease into the game. But in you know, in hindsight, he built all this course is pretty tough when you think about what the clubs were at the time. Uh, I can't I can't fathom. Well, Bobby Jones, frankly, he came right out and said it after he played Riviera. You know, where do the members play? And there's a great photo we found. I was so excited. It was it's a little out of focus, so we ran it real small in the Riviera book. But yeah, you know, it's Bobby Jones and you can tell he's out on the third green. If you know Riviera, you kinda of can tell by where the clubhouse is and his hair is just a mess and he just looks <laughs> he just looks shot. Uh and so and that was when he was at his at his you know, his peak really. Mm-hmm. It was when he was here filming the Warner Brothers films and he still could play great and and he thought it was impossible. So he definitely built his courses uh, pretty tough. And when you look at Riviera and you think about playing that with Hickories, uh, wow, it was, it was, a it was a beast. Well, so it, it, this was before
0: Bell. When did he meet Bell and who was Billy Bell at the time?
1: Uh, he was a superintendent, uh, at the time. I don't know exactly how they met, but, uh, he was, uh, uh, from Pasadena. And uh, obviously a very innovative guy with a background in engineering, and and then got into uh, golf maintenance and created a sod cutter, and uh, quite a talented, brilliant guy, really. In hindsight, when you think about what they accomplished, um, and they first uh, worked together on um, and now I'm forgetting if it was Ohio or Lacumbre first, but anyway, mid 20s.
0: I think it's Lacumbre. And-
1: Yeah, it probably was. I think that was 24, and then Ojai followed. That's correct. And, uh, uh, yeah, I would love to know how they got linked up. But uh, George was a busy guy. He had roses. He had his yacht. uh, He had to go deep-sea fishing. And so Bell was the perfect person to uh, oversee the construction on a daily basis, and that's what he did and handled the engineering of all these very difficult sites they took on. Uh, I mean, they're not difficult now. Compared to where people build a course, but at the time they were they were canyons and different things. Riviera was awful soil. L.A. was a redo. Bel Air was a bunch of canyons and a real estate development. And um, La Cumbre was had some spots that were really tough. And Ojai obviously another difficult site. Uh, so he was uh, the perfect guy, and and really brought his. Uh, uh, a different level of construction expertise. And then as they work together, you see it in the photos. Each course they got more and more aggressive with the bunkering style to the point where by the end at Stanford, they were just doing some some really crazy, wild, cool shapes. Uh, and it's fascinating how you just look at the photos. Each course they just got a little bit more and more aggressive. And uh, so they worked together. They were in about a seven-year, eight-year uh, span and created some incredible courses.
0: With with those bunkers, uh, it, it, one interesting thing I kind of think about a lot is a lot of architects seem to get subdued and, and worn down the more they, the work they do because of the, you know, greens committees or, or owners w- working on them over time and, and they get almost safer and safer, whereas their style seemed to get more and more eccentric.
1: Yeah, and I don't know what in particular inspired them to do that, except that they just probably got reactions to things and went, let's take it more. And they just became very consumed with the look of erosion and uh, really capturing your eye with with great bunkering. And, um, And thankfully, they did do that. The only, I guess, downside was that it appears, based on photos during construction of some of them, that the process was to sort of seed and grass the whole thing or a large portion and then come in and hand cut some of those shapes out. And uh, they lost those shapes fairly fast once somebody, yeah, once the depression came and and it was harder to get uh, the resources to pay people to maintain them or the desire to to, uh, maintain these little frilly edges that somebody probably thought were ridiculous. And then Obviously, as things got better, they got in people got into ed- edgers and weed eaters, and that's kind of how you have the current look of of the their bunkers at a lot of the courses, and and why we came up with the style we did at LA North, which is to, to, to replicate some of those shapes, but to make them look old and to build them in a way where those shapes were very are hard or almost impossible to edge out. Um, but they they obviously didn't know how that look was going to evolve uh, at the time. How would you? I mean,
0: I know it's hard because they're they're. Would what would be the best way to describe a bunker? And obviously, this is a, probably a visual thing, better shown by pictures over than rather audio. But would like. Kind of like an amoeba or like if you, if you cracked an egg into a pan and let let it go all over. I know. I I knew you were going to get me with that. Yeah.
1: No, I would say, you know, the two, the things that I, I mean, McKenzie supposedly was uh, kind of pointed to clouds. If you look at little floating clouds, um, And I think that's a shape that you, if you just watch a little floater and you look at the the shape of them, the bottom's a little cleaner and the top has sort of the more uh, uh, rough edged. Uh, I think they were trying to portray erosion. I think that was part of it is to have that look a little bit of a more maintained dune look. Um, And that was, that fit kind
0: of, that fit the landscape they were working in, correct? Like, cause, you know, they were working in these places. If you go for hikes anywhere around LA, you see that type of natural erosion, look on edges you of you know landforms.
1: Yeah, and I think McKenzie did it in part. If you look at the Monterey Cypress, uh, some of the shapes of the bunkers in Cypress, for instance, or Lake Merced or uh, Cal Club, some of those they were kind of mimicking those shapes of the trees. So yeah, I think they were they were working in these canyon settings and kind of saw those little. Blowouts and different landslide things, and that that inspired it. And obviously, again, the the uh, influence of Scotland and and because bunkers back then in Scotland were not the the bathtub, sod wall things that so many courses now unfortunately have. Um, a, a reaction to those bunkers evolving in ways that people didn't like, but but that certainly was because uh, Thomas wrote. Extensively about naturalness, they all did. You know, they were fighting. Uh, even the, the the Fowler style that he was overseeing at LA initially was a more uh, from the penal school of of design, where the bunkers were were more in your face and, and trenches, less natural right? looking. Yeah, they were trenches. They were they were not attractive. And you know, he wrote about it. McKenzie wrote about it. They were all clearly in. A mindset of trying to get people back to a very simple, seemingly simple concept, which is that if something is natural or seemingly natural, uh, you will enjoy taking it on. If it seems artificial, if it seems like the hand of man is, is trying to screw with your game and, and get in the way, uh, it takes you out of that, that sort of... Uh, quest to take on nature and it's not as satisfying and you're offended by an architect when they are screwing with you that way and that that mentality max bear wrote about it and thomas and and max bear were were friendly as well uh that was what max bear was consumed with and writing articles here at the time so they were all they were all kind of even if they had little disagreements they were all from that same mindset and trying to get golf back to that after a period of of player architects and people with less artistic sensibility feeling like that's uh, that that more uh, in-your-face style of design was proper. And they were saying, no, that's not going to age well. That doesn't have any permanence to it. And so we're trying to do it this way. And then Thomas and Bell, when they got together, really took things to another level in terms of, of the details of every little feature feeling as if it were... Natural, when in fact they did some unbelievable stuff that was required a lot of work to make it, uh, feel like it was always there.
0: So it is time in, in California, he designed roughly about, about 12, uh, or so courses. Yep. Give mm-hmm. or take, um, how many of them are still mainly intact where you could, you know, responsibly call it a George Thomas design
1: it's really down to the the big three in LA um you know Riviera Bel Air in LA I I can't really say look I mean nothing's Lacumbra's just been slaughtered Ojai uh has moments but it's really been uh butchered in in a lot of spots as well um so yeah it's it's really down to the to the big ones
0: from from those three courses, and obviously one we get to watch on TV every single year, one we'll get to watch on TV in two years. Uh, what what would you decipher as his strengths and weaknesses as an architect?
1: I I don't really view him as having had any weaknesses. I'm biased, obviously, because I'm I I'm his <laughs> biographer, and uh, <laughs> I well, at least you, know, you the recognize mo- it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I I really just think when he and Bell were at their peak, I just don't know if there was anybody, a team that was better in terms, especially when you know what they took, and what they created. They they weren't given great sites. I mean, L.A. North, for instance, was a redo. They I mean, there there's an aerial where you see people out playing while they're redoing it, and it's hard to believe when you look at L.A. North now that. That 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 was a, a redesign that was done in a fairly short amount of time, with people playing and the whole thing, and and it and yet it it, it comes together as this amazing uh, thing like they built it from scratch, and it really wasn't. What, what
0: were the big the big changes that they made to LA North in that redesign? How did it change for people that are, aren't familiar with the, you know either design really? What what were the big uh, themes of the redesign?
1: Uh, just replacing some bad holes and turning, turning uh, some of those into great holes or just creating new holes like the 11th and the 15th, the two back nine par threes, which are uh, just two extraordinary holes. And the 11th, you just, you know, you look at and you think, how on earth did they imagine this location for a sort of a reverse redan part three with his green site you know just built up there was a they just created that whole thing it wasn't like they carved out a a little thing a ledge and put that uh that hole there it it they created that um and obviously he was trying to fix something and having to put in pieces but still and in the 15th does you know, for years it used to be viewed as an afterthought. Like, what the hell happened here? This little short par three that that does feel like it's a little bit forced in, in a sense, because um, it's short. But now I think, uh, not to you know toot our restoration, but it it it's now a, a, an integral part of the back nine, and mostly because the hole was fine when he built it, it was great. But it was, uh, and he may have built a bunker in the middle of the green. Uh, but it didn't last very long. If he did, we have one photo where you can kind of see it. I I interviewed a member who took me right out there, and he uh, he's a sharp guy. He recently passed away, but he he insisted it was there for a while, and and uh, he replaced it with this bump in the green. But but anyway, the 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 point is, he 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 took uh he created new holes, he fixed old holes, he eliminated. I think reluctantly the old 17th, which we ended up putting back, which was not our, uh, I mean, it was our suggestion that joking a, link. That was
0: a hot topic hole, huh? In uh,
1: Well, in Thomas's time. Yeah, so the other thing we didn't get into is he he was also very involved in course setup, um, and he had a Tom Meeks moment in the California State Open. Uh, they, they played there. Now, I always thought it was the LA Open, but it was the State Open. And, uh, someday I'll, I'll have to just do the whole 17th hole story. Cause there was a poem written about the hole by his friend, Scotty <laughs> Chisholm, who documented a lot of the work and they had a San Ana win and he put the pin down in the front and, uh, it was a problem hole in tournament conditions before I think, uh, or, or it was, was, it was, it was definitely iffy to put the pin down in front. And of course he wrote multiple, he, you know, he was very, his writing was so succinct. He got, he, he just didn't waste time, but yet in golf architecture in America, he, he kind of waxes on for a while, <laughs> sort of defensively. <laughs> like McDonald Smith was a smart guy. Cause he basically like played to make bogey. Um, yeah, and it's sort of, it was, of a, it was
0: it's a short part three and he's justifying that it was fine because yeah. so one guy, made, made the, winner, the winner, the winner.
1: Yeah, let's be honest. The guy who won the tournament, but he, uh, but he screwed up, and uh, but the Santa Ana blew. Now they didn't have the weather forecast that uh, we have now. So, uh, in his defense, you know, he he didn't know what the wind was going to be like, probably, and uh, yeah, he put it down there, and nobody could keep it on the green, and um, and and so. That hole survived for the L.A. Open in 20s. The first L.A. Open was at L.A. Country Club, and they played the Fowler course. And the 16th hole was was a par four, and, and then par three was a 17th, and then the 18th was a blind tee shot. And uh, he changed all of that, but he did take the hole out. But it was clear it was it was hard for him because it was a neat little hole. It was a beloved little hole. Robert Hunter took a little shot at it. There were obviously people There were detractors at the time as well it was a controversial hole for sure but there were definitely people who absolutely adored it and you see some great scenes in the tournaments out there where people are uh, are, are are it was it was a place to hang out and watch the golf clearly
0: what, what was something, having you know worked out there for, for so many years, and obviously a, a historic restoration, one of the most um, influential restorations of, of this era of restoration, what were some things that you picked up on, like maybe just more subtle ones that you wouldn't pick up on your first time out there that you just really love about LA, his work at L.A. North?
1: Actually, the greens, uh, you know, because Thomas didn't build the most build the most exciting greens, um, but the the and and it was believed because he was just not a good putter, and he wrote a story, uh, an article about wanting to make putts a, a half stroke, which Hogan probably he was uh, called a
0: a vandal.
1: Yeah, yeah, that wasn't it. Was not everybody loved that one? Um, but he felt like there was an overemphasis on putting. I can't even fathom what he'd think of what what the game looks like today with the overemphasis on putting, you know, watching his greens at Riviera at at 13 and guys marking 18 inches because of POA and, and uh, you know, they're, they're scary little putts and in February. And uh, I just think he would say, Oh my Lord, putting has really become ridiculously overvalued. So he made his case and uh, I, I admire that he made the case, but uh, I think when you look at, at LA, it's such a, the, the greens just are, they're interesting enough. And uh, they don't ever detract. And then there's a nice variety of them. And there are a couple that are, that are more severe. And there are a couple that are just beautifully contoured. And, and I, I think when you, what I, what I love about his greens is, and, and, and LA in particular, is there's usually one or two key features on each green. And as a player, you can rem- you can remember those and use those to your advantage, depending on where the hole is, obviously, uh, to, to to place a shot or to know I can't miss it there. And I love that in that not enough people build greens that way, where they're they're mem- they're memorable enough there's just too many greens where there's just too many things to try to remember. And, and, and they're hard to visualize as you're trying to play a shot in. So he, he really allowed you to, if you could perform the shot, uh, use those features to your advantage. And I, I just think that's, it certainly wasn't uh, making life easier. It was just making the golf better.
0: It's it's something that I've kind of started to really believe in is that confidence as an architect is the ability to build a really subtly brilliant green, not the really, like we, everybody always says, oh, that the boldness of that green. Can you believe how, how, you know, how confident that architect is to build something severe? But in reality... I think the opposite is true where, you know, you could build something very subtle and small and that it's going to be just fine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he was, he was really good at that. And Bell, uh, was, was great at that. And I think a big part of the influence on that as well, they love to use little bumps, um, kind of on the side of a green and, and create little, little corners and tiers and wings. And they knew that was enough to just create interest without, going nuts with the contours and then the other thing they did with their greens that uh, again you you swear their courses were just sort of often lay of the land but they really weren't that they they but they were an extension of the fairway essentially that that uh, they didn't you didn't just have this kind of quiet ground and then get up to this green that was just going bonkers and so that again fed to their mindset that if it seems natural people embrace it if it seems man-made, they reject it, and and I don't like that when you when you're on pretty quiet ground, and then you get up there, and the green's just a roller coaster ride. It 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 it, it takes you it, it 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 makes you think of the architect, and and and, and can be quite annoying if the green is uh, getting in your way of of uh, trying to score in a, in a way that that um, isn't isn't much. Uh, I don't want to say unfair, but isn't fun. So that that you know that was a big thing at L.A. to me is 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 kind of having that that trust plus it's a it's a site where that you just get so few flat stances and so you just don't need the green to be doing much because that alone throws you off enough that uh uh, any slight tilt back front sideways whatever um, is accentuated and uh so that's a beautiful part of the design uh there for for sure and probably doesn't get a lot of attention just because again the uh, there's so much more to look at there. Tita, to, to Fringe.
0: With the uh, with with the other courses, Bel Air and Riviera. How did the sites differ from L.A., which you described was a more severe site, big big canyons that L.A. is is kind of situated in. How how were Bel Air and Riviera different, and how did the designs differ there?
1: Yeah, well, Bel Air was was a real estate development. He wanted to. He he used his plane supposedly to fly over the canyons and kind of help uh, uh, Mr. Bell Alfonso Bell the developer find the best site he wanted to be on the other side of sunset and there are some renderings showing uh, not actual architectural rendering sort of an artist rendering and then now that and then the state wanted that for UCLA and it became UCLA so he had to stay on the I guess uh, the north or the east side of sunset. And uh, that forced their hand to really keep everything in those canyons and then figure out how to go from one canyon to another. So they came up with the tunnel system. Uh, really unbelievable what, what they accomplished. And But down in the flats of the canyons, uh, I can't even fathom what it once was like. It had to be incredible to try to – well, it had to be pretty awful what they destroyed, I'm sure, in terms of beauty. But it to create corridors for golf. Um, and then Belair, you know his his daughter, who I got to speak to, she she was um, you know, obviously conflicted. I, I think George had some affairs or something, and and so she had kind of a, she and her mom had clearly a complicated relationship with him because she she ended up being a very good golfer and a longtime member of L.A. and an unbelievable woman, just amazing, uh, woman to talk to, and I I had some really fun phone calls with her at the time, just discussing things and trying to get things out of her and what she, she could never, you, you know how it is. They, they, people don't really know what's of interest sometimes, uh, when you're trying to find out about an architect and, but one of the main things she told me was that, uh, and, and she held this against Air, by the way, but she, she, he made very clear that was his, his greatest accomplishment to her and his favorite, uh, design because it was so difficult. And then he built some of his most, uh, I don't know, flamboyant or, uh, bold or, or nuts kind of stuff like the Mae West hole. And, and so when they did screw that up, both, both she, and of course, Joe Novak, who was a pro at the time, kind of a a legendary instructor. And he really held it against Dick Wilson. Uh, and, and she did too. in fact, she told me she, she stopped going there for team matches and things. And, and, um, so it was interesting. She she kind of admitted that it took her time in golf to start to realize the magnitude of what he did. But she played at L.A. and, and was a wonderful woman. So Bel Air was just his most uh, – and Billy Bell, they're, the combination. It was the hardest. Yeah, I mean, just what they pulled off and in the time they did it. And, you know, my only question on Bel Air is, is – uh, and we don't have a, that, that perfect photo right when it opened. There's a few photos, though, that show some better bunkering. But the bunkering there – I don't know it just didn't, it just wasn't quite as nuts as it was at, at um, uh, uh, even at Ohio or, uh, La Cumbre, where they, they were a little more, uh, interesting with the bunkering. And then obviously Riviera and LA, they, they, and then Stanford, they went to another, another level. Um, so that was, that was the, the complication with Bel Air was just pulling that off and, um, and they did it. Spectacularly, And, and uh, also used, it's interesting there, you, when you, you think about it, they they were more in the little bumps I mentioned by the greens. They went bigger there. They were bigger scale uh, moldings, as he called them. Um, and then Riviera was just a, a riverbed. It was not a, an attractive site in terms of soil. Uh, it, it would flood. There were all these issues. It did have this cool feature going through it. Um, a lot like what we had at Rustic Canyon. And, and we kept more intact, I guess, at Rustic because we had to environmentally with the sort of a sage scrub style wash that ended up obviously being a little bit of a problem in 1938. But uh, so crappy and soil. The, and that's
0: the the wash that runs along uh, 12, the 11, up. 13, yeah, yeah, yeah. 8 it, it, for those that have uh, you know, seen it on TV.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's now a deep, deep ditch, Barranca with a with a concrete Army Corps of Engineers uh, washway or, or or channel underneath that goes all the way down to uh, the ocean, and at the end of Santa Monica Canyon, and that was installed after the flood, and it was a big uh, excuse me, that was installed in the seventies, but after the flood the Barranca got a lot deeper. If you see the early photos of Riviera, it was more shallow and you could go play a ball more easily out of it. So yeah, the biggest complication there was they wanted to build the homes on the side and, uh, the 36 holes down at the bottom of the Canyon and, uh, still plenty of movement in the ground and the tilt of the Canyon, but it was essentially pretty flat. And that's their greatest construction accomplishment in terms of, of, uh, Subtlety, and this is what I really learned from from Ben Crenshaw so much that I just didn't understand. And he, he, there was a great old story by the first club manager, and he detailed each of the green sites where they they the number of feet they brought them up, like eighteen, uh, number one and number four, all these greens where you go, holy cow! So that was at this elevation, and they raised it, but you would never know when you're out there. And so that was where they and they they really pushed sort of the boundaries. They, they talked about bringing out road scrapers and they they pushed the boundaries of construction and sort of elevated the art of construction. And then drainage was Bell's uh, where he was just truly incredible the way he he uh, dealt with that site. And even though, yes, there were floods and, and it did damage, but it was a historic flood. It damaged many things in Southern California, It led to the L.A. River. Being, it was a big deal. It was a bad, bad El Nino. And um, so even no matter what he did, it wouldn't have mattered.
0: I think a few years ago you posted a, a video from Riviera, if I remember correctly, yeah. on social media, showing all of the way it, the drainage works out there.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Like when there's a huge, nutty downpour, you suddenly see these little beautiful rivers through the property. And it all takes it over to the Barranca and out to the ocean. And he... Uh, they just create, and, and then what's great about them though, is they add interest to the golf. They add these little swales and things that break up the land and, and, uh, but then, but when you get these monster rains that we can get by the sea, the coast and an El Nino. And when I worked on the book, I saw it and and went out there. That was the first time. Um, it's just wild because you can stand up on the hill and you just see these perfect little, little rivers. One goes through the range and, uh, one, one, two and 10, and there's some, so there's a unbelievable one by the there's a great feature on the fifth hole uh, anybody who's played there knows this big funky weird mound and uh mm-hmm. after one of the really big el ninos i went out there um in a cart, stayed on the path and there was just this unbelievable amount of water coming out of the hillside but kind of bouncing off and around that big mound and then go, kind of snaking down in front of the sixth hole to the to the washway and out to the ocean. It was just and it was like, oh, well maybe they there was maybe some rock underneath there or who knows. There was some reason they created it and then it also served this great purpose of drainage. So they they were masters at sort of that dual purpose thing, but you don't really notice unless you are looking really really hard for it. And that's what Ben opened my eyes to was and he wrote about that in the in the forward to the Riviera book. What a what a, a masterwork of, and maybe he thinks the greatest created golf course. Uh, I think he's, did he say the world? Anyway, greatest created course that, that he can, and, and what he meant by that is that they t- kind of took nothing and and made it something spectacular.
0: But it looks completely natural.
1: The ground does. I mean, now it doesn't because there there's just so many, you know, yeah. the bunkers are so clean and they've kind of gotten the barrancas have, have lost their. Their shape and their impact. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there are elements that have uh, the greens have been screwed with in in weird ways. So it's lost some of that. But yes, if you actually just look at the groundwork, uh, you just can't believe how many elements out there were were man made.
0: We're at this point with restoration where we're getting down. Yale is getting restored. Lookout Mountains getting restored all day. And I start to think about you know what are the great restorations left and you know, Riviera is one that jumps to mind, but oh, yeah. other ones are include Ojai and, uh, yeah. Lacumbra, potentially yeah. Lacubra. I don't know how yeah. much there could be done there, but then you start to think about it. It's like, well, like kind of like three of the best restoration candidates that exist in golf in American golf, at least are George Thomas courses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Riviera, uh, was called the Pine Valley of the West at the time, and you look at the photos and you see how dramatic it was, and you think, my God, with the right approach and getting that back um, and getting some of the strategy lost back and fixing the approaches, I mean, it would be a big job, but uh, it should easily be one of the top uh, 15 courses in the world if in that original state. I mean, there's just not a weak hole uh there's a case that it's the greatest set of par threes there's a there's a case that uh it's got just just multiple unbelievable par fours uh but it's in good shape and it's uh the bunkers are clean and it's fair and people like that and uh so it does fine it's 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 still ranked very well it's still great but as a work of architecture it just could be one of the
0: very best
1: it, it, it really would. It, it would be, yeah. It would be incredible. I would throw Pine Valley, by the way, onto your restoration list. I think it's it's been yeah. uh, <laughs> screwed with a little uh, in the wrong go. ways. Yeah. Well, There's we won't go down take. that rat hole. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously Augusta. That's, that's a
0: whole other podcast. Here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of the other courses, which one would you most like to see returned? Uh, or would you have most liked to see in its, you know, Great state of all uh, probab- the, uh, uh, all the yeah. other courses.
1: Probably Ohi, uh, just because it's such a beautiful place and 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 a difficult site. I mean, I saw Ohi. Yeah, you know, they used to play the Champions Senior Tour up there, and and I was roommates with uh, Al Geiberger's son John, and and so I would always go up and watch that. And, and my dad and I played there even before the Moorish project. So I, I saw parts of it, but obviously the abandoned holes that they tried to bring back weren't weren't in place but it's just such a the back nine is so beautiful and there were elements that you could see were really great that they've kind of lost so that that would be i mean lucumbra would be tough um because there were other changes but you still have the lake holes and you could still capture certain elements uh for sure
0: could they get that canyon hole back is that even feasible i think so what
1: was it the 16th Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't you know, it's been filled in the canyon. I don't know what you would do. I think you you couldn't quite recapture the depth of the old canyon, but you could do something to get that look of that green out on that crazy spot. The next part 3 is gone. It's the maintenance buildings on that green site. I don't think that uh that one would be easy to get back. That would be that would be a big project. Uh, so, but it, it was. A, there's the, a lot of
0: money in Santa Barbara. Yeah,
1: there is, and it was a and it was a crazy cool little par three. So he he built he built amazing par threes. I think that's another part of his career that uh, makes him stand out. I don't know many people who built more diverse and memorable and unusual but but great and fun par threes and than george thomas i really don't know if there's anybody i mean i obviously if you love your your template holes and rainer mcdonald rainer rainer built amazing par threes but i would also say and 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 varied and and went off in great tangents away from the the template and um and not to diminish that in any way because they're amazing but in terms of originality uh, i just don't think anybody was in the league of thomas and bell and their their prime and they also you know uh, these awful sites we're talking about did lend themselves to some fantastic par threes though that's the one positive of canyons these. Canyons, yeah, severe, totally
0: cool. <laughs> severe ground is a great place to put a park. Exactly,
1: and they but but as we know, people <laughs> screw that up, and they didn't. They they really got the most out of those, and that's uh, another thing that makes them so so amazing.
0: Um. So it, one last thing I want to hit on. This has been terrific. Uh, he in your book, you have some excerpts of him talking about rating golf courses. What mm. was his theory around rating a golf course and how it should be done?
1: Yeah, he called it standard of competitive merits of courses. I just happened to flip open the book to that page. Do you think he
0: would? Do you think he would appreciate the golf ranking systems as they stand today?
1: You know, it's a great question because it was such a, uh, it was such an odd thing for him to go off in this mindset. And I, I would love to. know, It's one of the things you would love to ask him, like why was this such a. Uh, a thing for you, but uh, in a nutshell, no. I think he'd think the rankings. I mean, who who would who would look at what? Uh, not not necessarily Golf Magazine because they're 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 going in a good direction, but like who would look at what Golf Digest and Golf Week do now for rankings and say, "Oh, that's that's a great idea." Yeah, let, that's that's superb. Well, what so a one
0: Anybody a uh, 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 a chief revenue officer would right. look at the well, Golf yes. Digest
1: one and, and, and admire it. Correct. Hey, look, Correct. At, look at how much money they make. I know it's up to three hundred a year and thirteen hundred uh, as a down payment. And it's probably going to be double that in a couple of years. But uh, yeah, it was interesting that he went down this rat hole, of, of sort of, of trying to to do this. I, I'm guessing that you know so much of this probably was dictated by uh, kind of the climate of the time. When you go back to what what he and and McKenzie and well, we didn't discuss their little spat. I would love to clarify that if you'd like uh, me to. But um, yeah, go for it. What, what for they it. were all bitching and not bitching and moaning, but they were they were advocating very hard for their philosophy, and each of them had little, slightly different takes. But 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 Mackenzie and Thomas, their work is very similar in a lot of ways, especially when Thomas joined with Bell in terms of the artistry, and and Mackenzie obviously had such an incredible group of people. Building his work. And, but they were all rather, they just, they just felt the need to keep pressing this case for, for uh, a certain kind of naturalness and permanence to design, having seen in their lifetimes the various phases that golf architecture had gone in. And they all, well, especially Thomas and McKenzie, explicitly wrote that they thought they were just at the beginning. That the next wave of people would take their ideas and go to the next level. Obviously, that didn't happen. It went the other direction. Um, so I think they'd almost, in, in a way, be a little disappointed that there hasn't been a more intricately strategic, old course style trend of, of just crazy, crazy strategy um, as part of the theme of architecture. But they were really working hard to make their case because they believe that's what was the right thing for the land and what was the right thing for the golf and the beauty and, 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 t- and, and the responsibility of, of plowing this property for golf and leaving it behind for, for people is to make it natural, seemingly natural and, uh, both for, what for a fun of the golf. place to
0: do it, California, you know, like the most naturally beautiful place in America. Right
1: well and they were they were probably realizing that there was a responsibility they were they were taking on especially in mckenzie's case some amazing sites uh so so the, and that's why it is kind of odd that they clearly had attention and i i wrote a piece about mckenzie's time in la which was just kind of one cluster of, after another he he had projects fall through and this and that i wrote this for um, for the upcoming book on on Mackenzie uh, that Josh has done, and I wrote just a just a look at his time in L.A. because I did have a story uh, related to that from my research on on Thomas. Because one of the things that we could not figure out when the Spirit of St. Andrews came out in '95, and when I was sort of in the middle of all this, was why why did Mackenzie just crap on Thomas? And it was obviously Thomas and his par three course at Riviera in the spirit of St Andrews. And uh, it's it, he never names him, but it's obvious who he's 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 speaking of. And and Riviera had this par three course where the range is now, and it was uh, magnificent. It was very heavily bunkered. It was a pitch and putt course, and it uh, really the ground for. it, was there until the, the tour had a phase. I guess it's now been what? 12 or so years, maybe even 15, now about 10 to 12, where for some reason, every range had to be a grass field with little stakes. That's, that was the feedback they got from players in a survey. So Riviera redoing its range to try to get majors, you know, did a nice job building a huge big T, but they just took the landing area of the range and bulldozed it. And, is heartbreaking because all the remnants of the old par three course were out there. And I, yeah. you know, walked it a few times when the range was closed late evening and, and found some of the old greens. And one of them was this crazy little clover leaf thing. And anyway, um, so it was a, it was a bold par three course. Let's call it that. I mean, it was tough. I'm sure uh, for what, those guys at the time thought a part three course should do. And anyway, I think it was an opening for McKenzie to take a shot because the story that was relayed to me by Frank um, Hathaway, who was the grandson of one of the founders of, of Riviera, Frank Garbutt, uh, there were two key founders, and they were big, big guys in the city of L.A., uh, William May Garland, who brought the Olympics here, and Frank Garbutt, and they, they co-founded the L.A. Athletic Club. And Frank Hathaway was really gracious in spending a lot of time with me when I worked on the Riviera book and he I mean he should have been. They got 108 million dollars for the place. So um he should have been in a he was living in a nice place. And but he and he didn't know the full story, but I helped him kind of piece it together. We we kind of pieced it together talking it through. But essentially there was a mix up. And there's those famous photos that Scotty e. Chisholm took of of McKenzie out on the side at Riviera. Um, and, they're in, and they're in my books and all over, and, and they're all dressed up, and they're looking at sketches, and Thomas has his little glasses on, and they're pointing, you know, and the whole thing. And there was a mix-up that McKenzie thought he was being brought in to to be the architect with, with this group. Um, and uh, he was clearly rather resentful of that from that day on. I mean, he put on a good show. He came out there. And one of the things he did was he brought a box of golf arc- his book golf architecture, and uh, it's another side story. But I many years later, a member sold me a copy. They had, it's the original with the dust jacket on it, and I, I paid oh hundred bucks for it. And yeah, they're worth like two grand now. They're very rare. And uh, he he brought this box of the books, and they sat in the club attic forever. And then Ron Rhodes the great man one of the pros put them out for sale they didn't sell for years they just apparently sat in the shop you know just out and nobody nobody wanted a book in the 80s or 70s and um, Willie hunter and Mac hunter the old pros before him and I guess they didn't throw them away which was nice um, and so he brought books he put on the full show and he gets there and and uh, there was a misunderstanding so he was kind of bitter from that point on it sounds like which is too bad because again their styles were were pretty similar. Now, and then I also might as well take this uh, moment to clarify that McKenzie had nothing to do with any changes to the course. Um, there's a, a kind of a huckster there named Mike Yamaki who tried to peddle a story with uh, using Ian Scott Taylor and and Phil Young's claims of these these drawings of McKenzie, and they're they're total fakes. They're oh, total frauds. the fraud. famous
0: McKenzie pa- papers.
1: Yeah, just total total fraudulent <laughs> stuff. And and the thing that they they didn't know when they embarked on this this canard uh, was that after I did the captain, I found, when I went back to the USGA and these old Pacific Golf and Motor and Country Club magazines, an article by Scotty Chisholm explaining what George Thomas was going to do to the course for the 1929 LA Open. So I have that article, and I've obviously shared it with the people who need to see it, and there's even a photo of the 10th hole where Billy Bell is... Supervi- not Billy Bell's not in the photo, but it says that he's out there supervising the changes to the 10th and a few other tweaks for the, the, the coming 1929 LA Open. And it shows the installation of new bunkers on 10 that really made the hole what it is around the green and all that. Um, McKenzie had nothing to do with any of that. It was all Thomas and Bell, and it was all in preparation for the 29 LA Open. But I didn't have that in the captain. Found that out about two years after, a year and a half after. But they, they didn't know that, and so they tried this this ridiculous uh, scam to uh, claim that McKenzie did all this work there, and unfortunately the club tried to tell everybody and their brother that this was the case. I don't know if they wanted to, to enhance the value of the place or whatever, but uh, he never set foot out there again after his, uh, as far as I know, and as far as the McKenzie uh, folks who've documented his travels know. Um I mean, he might have popped out there one day and seen the par three course, and that was his excuse to slam it. But, um, anyhow, so it's, uh, that, that part of the, the, the McKenzie legacy of Riviera is just really more about a site visit and a, a misunderstanding. And like I said, all of his time in LA just was sort of, <laughs> it seemed like it was jinxed, uh, for McKenzie.
0: Um, so about the course rating system, back to that. So what, what, how did he, he went hole by hole, right? And it was, a, uh... There was one point for a feature hole. Yeah, correct. Two point, two points for a good hole. So he basically graded he graded out every hole from a score of, I believe, one to five. And a, a one was like yes. a truly great hole. Right. And then, you know, it, and it's an interesting way. I think about this all the time because it's a format that I really like because it's um, I always ask the question, how many bad holes can a great course have? Right, and it exposes courses with bad holes, and I think it also lends an insight into how he built his courses because, you know, so often, and I think obviously this is a modern thing, but it's a, it it becomes about the picture holes, the spectacular holes, right, and it it, it sometimes ho- great holes or are. Given away in order to get to a place where that spectacular picture is taken, and the entire golf course as a whole loses some of its luster because of that. And and I think you know when you look at Thomas and the courses that I've seen, I haven't studied nearly as much as as you, but you, whenever you get off and done playing, you go, wow, that was. That was really spectacular, and one of the toughest questions to answer would be: What's the weakest hole at LA North? What's the weakest hole at mm-hmm. Bel Air? What's the weakest hole at at Riviera? You you could
1: sit and argue that for hours. You could, although I I will say the one weakness of his of his design work, and I think it was more product of the time than it, than than and the equipment than than his ability were were his par fives. Um, he generally didn't really make them very tough at the end at the green. And I think it was because they were pretty long and people were, I mean, if you went through his, with his, his system, you would probably knock his par fives the most. But I, again, I would say it was because he built some that were, you know, five 60, 70, uh, which in the day of Hickory's is, yeah, you're hitting a long club into those. So he tended to, and we, in fact, at LA on the, the eighth hole, we just. Flat out said, we're going to make this more difficult by the green because he didn't make it very difficult, and I, I really, but it was not just that hole. I mean, he did it at seventeen at, at uh, Riviera eleven at Riviera. So he, he, that was his one his one weak spot where you'd probably knock him down. But, uh, but I do think, I mean, I do think there is something to the system. It's a little like the 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 match play system of matching courses against each other. Because even though some people don't like that, you ultimately do uh, speak to those holes that are not as spectacular. You know, it's really fun to match play Riviera and LA North, and uh, you do kind of, or or any well any combination of courses, and you do it does almost highlight more not the great holes, but those those moments of where like well why didn't the architect just do something to get a little more life out of this hole. Um, to to make it interesting enough and uh you know and that was where he and bell were amazing they just they just they just didn't do any uh, uh bland holes they might not photograph well like you you know but there was character there were there were there were subtleties and uh but they they most of the time they kind of hit you over the head with pretty pretty uh, uh awe inspiring looking stuff they didn't they didn't like to but they they threw in enough i mean you got to have some holes that are not you can't have every, I think he even, um, was it he or McKenzie? I mean, you can't have, no, actually it was, uh, uh, it was Tillinghast. You can't have a attacks of hysteria, I believe was the line on, you know, you don't want every hole to be uh, uh, just an incredible, you know, where, you know, Pine Valley does that, but, but how many courses can do that and make you want to keep playing the game and not lose your mind where it's just relentless? And that was always the mentality of Pine Valley um, and obviously inspired him to, create those kinds of holes, but you just can't on a course. People are going to play every day. Um, and, and he thought more on that mindset. He also thought that way with routing as you know, he, he was into loops of holes and he made a big deal about that. Um, and I was fortunate to experience that playing Riviera, the, the, the great little loops of holes. You just go out and play three or four holes and you're, you're right there. You know, you're not stuck out at the far end of the property. You're right there. And he, he took LA country club has great little loops around there. So he was, he was a little more cognizant of, of that day to day enjoyability of a course while still blending in the the crazy and the magnificent and all that. And I think that's why he's so so incredible as an architect.
0: All right. That's a perfect place to end it, you know? It's uh, waxing poetic about George Thomas. Hopefully <laughs> we will see more Thomas restorations in the next uh, ten years. Who knows? Yeah hopefully one can one can dream yeah I think we were dreaming about Yale for, dec- for 10 wow, years. Wow, I mean who 10, would have thought 20, 30 40 50 years yeah what who about or our, our,
1: our inverness or Oakland hills or congressional or oh, I mean it, yeah. uh, uh, it, it, there's quite a. I was just pondering that looking at the golf list and I wrote about it in the newsletter today you know I mean, just amazing to think congressional and Oakland Hills, these old PGA sites in Southern Hills that had gotten either tired or now look where they are. You're like, wow. If you told me that uh, 10 years ago, I never would have, those wouldn't have been the ones I, I predicted seeing the light and look, look where we are now. It's pretty cool. Maybe Griffith
0: park. Who knows? Who knows? That, uh, that's,
1: we need a rich guy. Might be a little... <laughs> we need yeah. a rich guy to write a um, check. And uh, that, that's, that would be key. So,
0: People can find you. You got jeffshackelford.com, golf's OG blogger. You know, you were the first. We all owe you a uh, debt of gratitude. Oh, thank you. I think that's the way. And uh, then you've got, you're you're also on Substack. You're very trendy. Yeah. You've got the Quadrilateral. It is a subscription. I subscribe. I enjoy it. I read it all the time. I highly recommend people subscribe. It's, what, 50 bucks a year? It's, it's like
1: correct you know, or less uh than five dollars cu- a month it's one uh one that's latte that's a, a starbucks month starbucks
0: trip one latte a month and you can get jeff's writing um delivered right to your inbox it's delightful i would recommend it and uh then you're on twitter and instagram at jeff shack so yep, people can find you uh, um anything else any parting thoughts on on thomas anything to leave people with you just wish your book probably was cheaper, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it it is kind of uh, kind of amazing how expensive it is now. I do have um, a, a stash that I need to to get out on the market. I don't think that's going to lower the price much, but uh, it was great. I, it was great fun to self publish that, and I got very lucky again with the quality of it. But you know, the thought I'd leave you with is um, don't feel bad, but uh, because he did inherit a lot of money and had a lot of free time, but when you think about what he did in 59 years, it's and with health problems and a war uh, in between, it's, uh, it's inspiring. Again, he had a nice bankroll, and we would all. But still, I'm not well, sure. I there could, was no uh,
0: television either, and, right? And the correct. PGA tour wasn't occupying 50 weeks of our our lives. Every that year. is
1: correct. That is correct. Those were all <laughs> key points. But uh, I think it was a diversification of interest. You know that he could he could go from the the roses to the catching these these uh, amazing fish off, <laughs> the, was it, off tuna? the coast. Tuna, yeah, and the, the tuna club and all that, and and what a and you know which was. Part of the movie Chinatown, the Albacore Club was inspired by uh that. You know, it was an amazing time in Catalina. You know, Bobby Jones had a tournament out there and Wrigley and the Billy Bell did a course out there that's that's a mess. That would be cool to see restored as well. But uh yeah, just an inspiring it life. It seems and, like uh, there's
0: just a a heap of of Billy Bell and Thomas courses in, in Southern California. Yeah. That are um, just just sitting yeah. there.
1: Yeah, it was a dark time. We had a lot of people come through and not not get the uh, get what those two guys were about, and uh, we're getting there, but it's still compared to other parts of the country, we're we're not quite there. But the uh, I think you know with the U.S. Open coming and and all that stuff, it, it'll it'll keep uh, we'll keep chipping away. All right. Well, thank you. And, all right. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate you uh, giving me the time to talk about the captain.
0: Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. And just as a quick reminder, we have a terrific three-day-a-week newsletter. We're talking about newsletters a lot. Jeff's is the quadrilateral. Ours is just the Fried Egg newsletter. If you go to thefriedegg.com, you can sign up for it. It comes out every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Will Knights writes it. It it, uh, is covering some really interesting topics in golf obviously a lot of news with what's going on with the saudis and uh the alternative leagues and then obviously uh we get into some other fun topics we have a a public golf must see that comes out every week or so so check out the newsletter sign up for it at the and uh we will talk to you soon